Ladies and gentlemen, if, if we could have your attention, thank you so much for joining us, especially over lunch today. And uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, so we're going to cut to the chase. I'm David Gergen, and I'm uh, moderating, have the privilege of moderating this session. Can, if, you could, if you could stop your conversation so others can hear, it'd be great. Uh, yesterday, from this podium in one of the opening sessions, uh, there were warnings issued about uh, the future of America and its place in the world. Uh, and the argument was made uh, that among the most important uh, things we have to pay attention to are technology and innovation, that we have to maintain a strong, clear technological edge, and that innovation is essential to the country's continued uh, growth. Saturday night at a dinner uh, here with Socrates, uh, there was an equally strong argument made that the people who are going to make the difference uh, for this country and for the world are increasingly the next generations, the younger generations coming up. Two of them, some of them, the generations, it's, it's essentially between, say, 30 and 45, and a younger generation, the millennials, as they're often called, many of whom are in universities today. Uh, and those two generations offer great promise for this country and for the world. And the notion here today in this uh, conversation uh, is to bring to you uh, two of the most promising members of the younger generation, the 30 to 45 group. Uh, people who have, I don't think either one is, is are you, or what, how old are you? 32. I'm, 32. In, I'm in the group. You're in the, you're in the group. All right, good, good, <laughs> good. So we start out with the right, with the right uh, framework. Uh, but I, I can't tell you how often I, I encounter people, and indeed I experience it in a classroom, uh, that the best ideas, the, the, the idealism and a sense of dedication to, to social change is bubbling up in, in a, such a good way from the younger generations. And it's what gives us, so many of us who sometimes get despair, and there was a despairing quality to some of what was said yesterday afternoon, what gives us so much hope are the promise, is the promise represented by these younger generations. So well, we have Jack Hittery, who is here, who is a, an entrepreneur, uh, who is uh, both in the, in the, in the nonprofit and the for-profit. He splits his time. Um, he has been uh, very prominently uh, uh, showcased by Tom Friedman, both in his book and in columns and by Time magazine. Uh, and Fred Swanaker, who is here for, and joined us and was that willing to give up the world, Cup uh, uh, to come here from South Africa, uh, where he runs an African Leadership Institute uh, that is a, that works with the younger, very young. I think they start 16 to 18, and uh, in, in Africa, uh, and and is uh, very promising in its own right. What I'd like to do is open this very easily and very conversationally, asking each of you to explain what you're doing, give us a better sense of your context, what you're trying to accomplish. The, your, your ideals, your obstacles, what the, what the uh, roadblocks are, and, and importantly, what others can do to help you, can make, your, can make you more successful. Because I think part of what many of the rest of us want to know is, okay, we've got these young hot chargers out there. What kind, how, do we, how do we create an environment in which they are most likely to succeed? Jack. Sure. Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone, for coming in, for giving up some lunch, or maybe you're still munching. It's good. I would say the first thing is that I'm super excited to be an entrepreneur. When I was a kid, I realized I was going to be an entrepreneur. So for me, it was a very natural thing to do. I came from a, a community and a place uh, that everyone around me were small business folks and family businesses and things like that. We didn't know anyone who worked for a large company. So 
for me, it was a very natural thing to go ahead and become an entrepreneur. And over time, uh, built some businesses, but also realized that you can be an entrepreneur as well in the social sphere and the political sphere. And so it's been really exciting for me personally to try to see those skills transferred from one part to the other part. And I think there's actually an interesting mix. A lot of people come up to me and say, Jack, I'm very interested in politics, interested in changing education, interested in green energy. What can I do about that? And there's a lot of what I would call traditional ways to address that. But I think what we're finding more and more is that we need to bring that entrepreneurial spirit and this guerrilla tactics and the kind of spirit that you have in startups to these other spheres if we're going to really meet the gap. Personally, I think there's a huge gap right now in terms of social innovation, social entrepreneurship. I think there's some great examples. Um, Fred's doing a great job, for example, in South Africa with this Pan-African uh, Leadership Academy. There's other great examples around the world, and we can name some of them. But the fact is, if you look at the magnitude of the problems and the challenges and the number of folks trying to address it, it's an enormous gap. So I guess, personally, what I have found is, what is an entrepreneur? A lot of people say, I'm thinking about starting something. Can I start something? Well, for me, first and foremost, an entrepreneur is somebody who sees what is and says, I have a vision of what can be. And that's, I think, the first thing, uh, fundamental to being an entrepreneur. I just wanted to read one little quote, if I could, sure. from one of my favorite authors, Pablo Neruda. Anyone know Pablo Neruda? OK, good. Um, and this is really just two quick verses that really, I think, encapsulate a different worldview. Because what poets do very often is they can look at the world, the same world that we all look at, and say, I'm looking at it a little differently. And so for me, sometimes, I go to Pablo Neruda or other kinds of folks like that and say, um, this is an interesting way of looking at things. So one day, he's looking at a bowl of rice, and he says, and I'll read in both Spanish and English, Who is the rice smiling to with, with its infinite number of teeth? And so he sees a bowl of rice as this huge smile that's smiling back at him. And another example is, ¿Cómo se llama una flor que vuela de pájaro en pájaro? How do you call the flower that flies from, bee to, that flies from bird to bird? And so he's taking something that we'll look at normally, a bowl of rice, uh, flowers and birds and things like that, and he turns it upside down, and he looks at it very differently. And that, to me, is the essence of what being an entrepreneur is. Be it in the, in the business realm where someone says, hey, there's a need for a new search engine. Go, let's go create a search engine or things like that or new energy areas. Or same thing in the social sphere or the educational sphere. You say, wait a second. I see the educational system as it is now. How could it be? One of the programs, I'll just mention one program that we're working on right now, which is we, we saw the education system. We looked at it, a number of us from uh, my group, from Gates Foundation, MacArthur, a lot of folks working now in the White House administration said, we obviously have a problem here. And there's lots of great people working in education. There's been great panels here at Aspen Ideas Festival already. But the question is, how do we get to scale? And one thing I think that's interesting about startups is they can get from a small scale to a very large scale rather quickly. And so what we realize is there's an untapped talent pool in this country of 5, 10 million techies and scientists, engineers, uh, all kinds of different kinds of uh, non-traditional educators who are, are willing to engage with kids in the classroom but really have no means of doing that. So we created a website very much like Match.com. It's like a dating site. But instead of people going on dates, what they do is they go online, they register themselves saying, I'm a techie, I'm an engineer, I'm an astronaut, whatever I am. And the K-12 teachers come online and they say, I'm looking for a biologist, I'm looking for a techie. I'm looking for somebody to work with us on what we call challenge-based learning, the way of learning that's not from a textbook, the way of learning that poses a challenge to the kids and says, hey kids, 
can you build a robot that jumps, that climbs? We'll be back in three hours. See how you do. And we bring these folks in and work with them. And part of also what I want to share with is, is the idea of the mashup. Because when you think of these kinds of techies, you might say, oh, that's not for me. I'm not a techie. But you know who we're bringing in? We're bringing Danielle Boulou, the chef. We're bringing chefs and musicians into classrooms. Because doing food science with kids and the science of music is very exciting to kids. And so mashing up these different disciplines together and allowing the kids to do something on a hands-on basis, Joel Klein picked it up in New York City. It's now in many schools in New York. And in just the first six months, we now reach 500,000 kids in 1,500 schools. So that's just one example, I think, of having an idea but looking at things a little differently than has been seen before. So that's, called, that's what's been called Lab Day. National Lab Day, exactly. National Lab Day. And so how many schools are you in? We're now in 1,500 schools around the country in the first six months since we launched in January. And the idea is to bring a techie or an engineer or, or a, a musician in and spend part of a day with kids in a classroom? Often several weeks, uh, multiple times over several weeks. And again, not just talking, saying, hey, I'm a scientist, I'm this, I'm that, but actually finding um, a bunch of found objects and saying, let's build a musical instrument out of some found objects we found in the street. Right. And so it's really all this hands-on, challenge-based stuff that really flies in the face of how we teach today. Uh, uh, tell us about results. Well, results are this. We have... Uh, Right now, it's only six months in. So what we do know is the participation rate. I'll give you one example. Fort Bend, Texas, small community based near an Army base. They adopted this program. 70,000 kids have participated in this program just in the first six months. And so the, what the teachers are telling us, what the su school superintendents are telling us is the engagement is across the board much higher. Now, the Gates Foundation has been doing this on a smaller scale for five years. The results are absolutely clear. You take kids that are under 50% achievement, they will go to 80, 90% achievement if you switch them from a textbook-based education to a non-textbook-based education. I think many of you may have heard Chancellor Joel Klein say this morning, in five years, there'll be no more textbooks in the New York City public schools. And so this is the vision that we have as well. We have to move away from giving kids the answers and testing them to a, to a mode of saying, you know what, kids? Maybe you can find the answers. Maybe you'll fail at first. Maybe you'll have trial first and error before you have success. But that's the way these kids will learn something that is super exciting to them. I, don't, I understand textbook learning. I don't understand non-textbook learning in terms of how do you make it systematic and, and assume it's something more than play. Right. And mental play, which is exciting. But how do, right. how, Let's how, not how do you Let's not denigrate play. But um, what's, what's interesting is you can take different modules. Let's say, for example, we want to teach something in calculus. Right. Right? In calculus, we learn something called acceleration. So we have speed, and then we have the acceleration. How fast is it moving, and how much faster is it moving? Well, you can learn that from a textbook, and you can test kids on that. Most kids then will forget it within a few years. What you can also do is say, all right, kids, build a little car out of some metal, wood, things like that. We're going to have a test. We're going to see who can actually get this car to get accelerated up to this speed from here to point B. And let's have a little test, a little game, a little competition. And so, for example, we brought down the head of NASA, Charlie Bolden, to actually do this with us. Uh, he's an astronaut himself. And we did this, and the kids absolutely participated. They had to learn the laws of acceleration from calculus on their own to get to that kind of competition. So we can have modules keyed in to each part of the required curriculum, and that's how we actually make it a real curriculum instead of just play. Great. Okay. Uh, we have one of the country's foremost educators in, in the audience, as well as others, but uh, before we go, I, I want to go to Fred, but ultimately I want to ask Howard Gardner to, uh, to enter this conversation uh, about uh, this, this kind of learning, because it's so interesting. But Fred, tell us about uh, what you've been up to now in Africa. How long have you been doing it? What, what, what kind of success are you having? What, what are your aspirations? So um, 
So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from Ghana originally, um, but grew up uh, That's why you gave up on the World Cup That's early. why I gave up, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Once we lost, I said, I might as well go to Aspen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, I grew up all over the continent of Africa and um, became very passionate about the continent, but also realized that uh, you know, something, something big needs to happen in Africa um, if we're going to change um, you know, the, the course of, 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 of development on, on that continent. Because um, I read somewhere recently that the current, at current rates of development, uh, in 50 years from now, there'll still be 270 million people living in Africa below, you know, um, surviving on less than $2 a day. Uh, and that's in 50 years from now. Um, and and that, that, that to me is not, is, is not acceptable. Uh, we need something that's going to shift um, the, the, the trajectory of, of, of development in the continent. And, uh, you know, they say that when, when, when the universe was, was, was created, physicists tell us that there was a, a big bang that, 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 that eventually created the cosmos. Africa needs a big bang. And so what the work we're doing is to, is to we're trying to identify um, young people that we think have, have big ideas for change um, and, um, and really cultivate them and work with them throughout their lifetimes um, to, to bring about the change that, that, that we need in Africa. Because I believe that a lot of people who change the world start young. You know, Nelson Mandela was in his early 20s when he got involved with the ANC. Uh, Martin Luther King was, you know, 35 when he got the Nobel Peace Prize. So you can imagine how young he was when he started his activism. You know, and obviously the Facebook kid was 17 and the Google founders in the early 20s. So we're trying to find the African equivalents of these people um, in the early, in, the, in those formative years and then, and then developing them um, throughout their lifetimes through some formal and informal programs. Uh, initially, we bring them into a school, a boarding school for two years, but then we well, keep... they come to a boarding school in South Africa? In South Africa, yeah. We, we, we find them from throughout the continent. And how old are they? They're typically between 16 and 18 years old when, we, when we identify And what's them. the gender mix? 50-50, 50% boys, 50% girls. Uh, and they spend two years in the school in an intense environment where they get to prepare for college but also begin working on, on various... With um, textbooks? Projects. Actually, not too many these days. <laughs> not too many these days. Um, and then, you know, so the goal is to create 6,000 leaders uh, over the next 50 years in, in all fields um, who can transform Africa. You know, when I looked at all the challenges that Africa faces, I realized that in my lifetime, there's no way that I could address all of, you know, many of them. But if I could have an impact on finding people who could, you know, and create a whole network of people who could address the myriad challenges that we have then we can really have, have big impact on the continent. Uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, opened a school for young girls, which was a leadership academy. And she's run into a fair number of problems with that. I think, it's, I think that's, that's a fair point. Uh, t tell me how, do you know much about her uh, experiment and how it compares? Yeah, I'm quite familiar with, what, with, the, with Oprah's work. Um, I mean, a couple of differences. One is her, her work focuses only on girls, and we, we do right. both genders, and hers is South African only, and ours is Pan-African. Um, I think that the, you know, she has a similar vision of, of finding and developing young leaders for, Africa, for South right. Africa in this case. Um, and you know, um, with any new venture, um, with, with, a big, with a big mission, the, the implementation is going to be difficult. And so I think that, you know, she, as you quite rightly mentioned, she's had some, some challenges which... Thankfully, you know, we, we've been able to avoid most of those, those types of challenges. And ultimately, I think, you know, 
uh, with with any venture, it's it's really about quality of management, and you know, and uh, I think she's been unfortunate not to have had, you know, the, some uh, sort of found the, the best management talent to work with. Yeah. Is the management talent that do you think makes the difference? What do you what do you actually do in those two years that can change their lives, put them on a different path, help them find a different path, live up to a different potential? Um, well, so the one aspect is we, we find people with, with, with talent. Uh, the second thing is we, 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 we develop them. So, um, What does yeah, that mean to develop them? They, while doing the two years, they participate in a, you know, in a traditional academic program where they learn their basics to get them into college. But also we take them through what we call a leadership and entrepreneurship um, program where um, they formally learn um, leadership and we get them to practice what it means to be a leader. So they either have to launch a company uh, or launch a project in the community. So we have a small venture fund on the campus and a foundation. Uh, and uh, we've launched about 30 different projects. So we have a bank on the campus, um, a farm, you know, various other uh, ventures that are taking place on the campus as well as in the communities. And the whole idea is, you know, much like Michael Dell was 19 years old and he started selling computers in his dorm room and that gave him the practice to eventually create Dell. We're trying to simulate those types of experiences for these kids. You know, and both in the, the ones who want to be you know, um, uh, for-profit entrepreneurs and build big companies and create, and create jobs in Africa, and the ones who want to be social entrepreneurs. Um, you know, so uh, that hands-on experience in terms of what it means to be a leader and entrepreneur uh, is a real critical um, part, part, part of the program. How long have you been doing this? Uh, the whole project has been going on for the last six years. So you've had four years of graduates? No, um, for four years we were running short-term programs, okay. and then we've now, for the last two years, been running the uh, the full-scale two-year program. And our first class has just graduated and is going to college this September. Yeah, you told me before we got up here that you uh, created the control group, that and you've been comp trying to compare uh, performances between those. Tell us a little bit more about that and what you've learned. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the idea behind the control group is that you know people say, well, you're not really doing much be because you're selecting people who are going to be successful anyway. You know, we had 2,500 applications from 40 countries in Africa. You choose the best 100, of course they're going to be successful if your, school, you know, if, if your intervention didn't exist. So what we're saying is that, well, um, if we need to actually have a control group. You know, when you have 2,500 applications and you only select 100, chances are that the next 100 that you didn't select were probably as equally talented as the 100 that you did bring, but the only difference is that they didn't, you didn't ha participate in your program. So what we are doing is we're fortunate because of our selection process that we actually have the data on all the 400 finalists in the program. And, and, and we're tracking what our young leaders do over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, how many companies do they start? How many create jobs do they create? How many, you know, percent, what percentage of them become senior leaders in government and, you know, civil society and so on versus this control group to really see the difference that, this African, that, that our interventions and the networks that we are able to plug these young leaders into yeah. has on, the, yeah. on Africa. It's, it's very interesting. There are a number of organizations now that have sort of young leaders groups here at, here at Aspen. We have the Crown Fellows. We have the Rodell Fellows. Uh, Bill Clinton was just here in the last few days and, and named a group of young leaders uh, who came. We had 15 or 20 that were here this weekend uh, from around the world. Uh, the World Economic Forum has a Young Global Leaders Program uh, that's, that's been very important. Well, you were part of an earlier, an earlier incar incarnation of that, yeah. were you not? Yeah. And we do a lot of work at Harvard with the Young Global Leaders. And uh, 
uh, and it, these are terrifically good ideas. The question is how do we make them successful? And I, I'm just curious, having been through one of these young leadership programs, as you hear this, what, what, is, it, what is the trick, do you think? Because I, I think all of us are searching for this. How do we really accelerate the, the personal development, the entrepreneurial and leadership capacities of people with so much promise? Well, and I think one of the interesting points, Fred, you mentioned the point of how do you not just select people who would have been successful anyway, and how do you actually bring in other folks into the conversation that would not necessarily have joined in? Um, what, one thing I think is interesting is choosing people who are not the usual suspects. So an example would be I also was, was lucky enough to be selected as part of a young leadership fellowship of the China-U.S. Relations Committee. Hmm. So this is a committee that was started by Henry Kissinger a long time ago. Carla Hills, I think, now the chair. And they said, you know, let's try to say that in 25 years, 20, 25 years, there'll be leaders of both countries, U.S. and China, and maybe actually they should meet now and then develop a friendship and relationship over 20 years so that when 20 years comes, they actually will know each other. We're not going to have like a Cuban Missile Crisis situation where one phone call or, you know, 30 seconds away, right. we have missiles going up. And so um, they started selecting folks. And what was funny is they didn't go out and say, who knows a lot about China? Who's doing a lot in China? They didn't go and do that. They actually selected folks who are architects, never been to China, don't know a word of Mandarin. And so that actually was very interesting. And on the Chinese side, they chose a lot of folks from China who had no particular connection to the states or things like that. Putting us all together in this crazy crucible actually led to a really interesting bonding. And now, six, seven years later, this is one of the, the tightest, cohesive groups I've ever personally been really? part of. How often and do you all do? You, we, do you we all get together literally every month to six weeks. Come on. And not the whole group. Yeah. Little stuff. Now there's only six, seven classes of fellows. And there's an email list that goes around saying, I'm in Shanghai, I'm in Beijing, I'm coming to New York. And we all get together, we share stories, we share ideas, we share business tips, business concepts. We often do business together or do nonprofits together as well. For example, in our, in our education initiative, we're now going to start Skyping to a classroom in Hainan Island in China via one of the fellows who's a musician in, in China. So that just came out of this, out of this group. That, to me, one of the keys to success is do not pick the usual suspects, the ones who've been picked as uh, White House fellows or been recognized and things like that, <laughs> but pick somebody who's maybe a little bit below the radar, who's not necessarily the most obvious choice. Well, there's been, there's been this long you know, uh, history, of course, about Rhodes Scholars, and once you become a Rhodes Scholar, everything else is downhill. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 real, uh, the, the, the real goal here is not to become a young leader, but 20, 30 years later, be, to be known as an old leader. Right. <laughs> yeah. You've actually you know, accomplished something through life. Uh, but I want to come back and, and, and raise this question, which I think is pretty fundamental, uh, and that is uh, getting to scale. Uh, we have uh, tons of startups now that are occurring not only in this country, but in other countries, Africa and elsewhere. You see startups in China. Uh, but a major obstacle in this country has been, it's been very, very difficult to get to scale. There are uh, take Teach for America. I happen to be on the board of Teach for America. Uh, and Wendy Kopp is a heroine of mine. Now, she's, she started this uh, 21 years ago, uh, 1989, yeah, 21 years ago. And she is, uh, she's now going to put, in this next year, she's going to put 4,500 new core members into tough, the toughest public uh, schools in the country, urban as well as rural. Uh, but we had 46,000 applications. Uh, we 14% of the graduating class at Harvard apply. Uh, for Teach for America. So it's 13, 14, 15 percent at many, many other universities. And, but she, she can't take yeah. care. She can't get to, we, we are having a hard time doubling the size of the, of the organization. Can I, can I address that? Sure. Um, let me just address that with just two quick case studies. So 
Has anyone here heard of FIRST Robotics from Dean Kamen? It's a, yeah. great, okay. So people here have had maybe kids involved, have been mentors or things like that. Everyone loves this program. For those who don't know, kids build robots. The robots compete with other robots from other schools in soccer, often football, as it's known <laughs> in, in Ghana and other places. And the winner, winning robots win prizes. There's cheerleading. There's, it's just like a sports, it's like a sports team. Great program. In 18 years since the program began, they've only reached 1,800 schools. And of those schools, they reach 30 kids per school. So success in terms of a nice young, you know, uh, uh, relatively young uh, nonprofit, 18 years old, but only 1,800 schools out of, and only about 150,000 kids out of 55 million kids K through 12 in this country. 150,000, 55 million. So there's an issue. There's a scaling. Right. There's a scaling problem. And again, what we did is we sat down with with first and we said, what is the key limiting factor of growth? Well, five years ago it was money, but now since everyone loves FIRST, everyone's throwing money at them. JCPenney just said, we will fund two to three teams per store. That's 1,100 stores, 3,000 teams, so they're getting plenty of money. The key limiting factor, mentors. Adult external mentors who can come in and work with these, work with these kids. And again, that's where we go back to platforms, web-based platforms that can scale matching of mentorship. Second case study. People here have heard about electric vehicles now since 70s, 80s, maybe somebody here drove one of the EV ones that got crushed and who killed the electric car and things like that. And once again now, we see a potential renaissance in electric vehicles. Ten different manufacturers, Toyota, Nissan, Ford, GM, all coming out with electric vehicles starting this coming January, matter of months. We, we sat back and said, once again, I think we're going to have a market failure here. We're going to have a scale issue because who's going to buy these? 100 Tesla buyers, 4,000 people buying a Nissan Leaf, and that's about it. People like an Aspen are going to buy them. But how about the rest of the country? So we sat back and said, how do you break through these kind of scale issues? In this case, it's not a web issue. It's a case of access to this kind of vehicle without paying a huge premium and out, without having to put a charging station in your, in your, in your um, house. So we said, how can people access those kinds of cars without doing that? And then we thought of the rental companies and the car sharing companies. So people might have seen Zipcar or obviously all the rental companies. And it turns out when you ask Toyota how they sold a million Priuses in America, the answer, a huge part, is the rental companies. Many people had their first experience with these vehicles by renting them as a Prius and then deciding to buy one. So we went to some of the rental companies, went to some of the automakers, and we said, would you be willing to form a consortium to make an all-electric vehicle car sharing and rental program around the whole United States and eventually around the world? And they said yes. So it's an idea that they have, but it's a business idea that we think they're going to make a lot of money with. And I don't know if people recognize what this is. This is the plug we'll be using to plug in your electric vehicle. Um, it's obviously not plugged in right now, otherwise I'd be in great which, shock. Where, which plug goes where? <laughs> <laughs> so this comes from the car or yeah. from the fueling station and goes right into the car. And this is now, just in the last nine months, the world has standardized around this plug, which can charge up a car at many times the speed of a normal, where, normal outlet. Can I ask where it's manufactured? This is manufactured actually in the U.S. This is a really? U.S. company. U.S. Yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. Hi, yeah. right, hey. <laughs> Coulomb Technologies out of um, just south of San Francisco. So, so basically, I think that, again, that's where entrepreneurialism comes in. Be it a single person as an entrepreneur or be it a small company, whatever it is, we, we have to go to new models. We're not going to scale this electric vehicle concept in the old model of trying to buy cars. We're not going to do it in education the old way either. We need to think about some of these new ideas. That, that to me, is the, do you all have a sense that your generation is sort of pushing this really hard, the people your age, uh, your peers, 
Uh, we had Michelle Ree and, and, and the new mayor of uh, uh, Atlanta here for the, Miss uh, Ray, uh, at Kasim Reed here on Saturday night for the Socrates program. And they were both around 40 years old. And they were very charged up about the generational aspect of this. Do you all sense that? You're, I know you're 33, you're young. But do you, do you sense that there's a real push in, in your generation to, to do this? Well, I would just say briefly, one, a lot of people are out of work. Let's just, make, let's just also be realistic. Right. A lot of people, this generation, are out of work right now, and they're looking for new things to do. And when they think of new things to do, they don't necessarily want to jump back into the Wall Street kind of thing that they were in before. Right. So one, they have an opportunity now to do that. Second, those who've had some success, where I'm, I'm, my peers, I'm finding a lot of them say, you know what, I don't even want to set up a traditional foundation. They don't want to set up another Gates Foundation, just write checks all day. Right. They want to become an activist. If you look at what um, Jeff Skoll has been doing, for example, with his films, Syriana, or other films that he has from participant films, I think that's a great example of a new generation philanthropist saying, you know what, I'm not just writing a check to somebody. We're going to get involved. We're going to get down and dirty. We're going to go visit the situation. We're going to do something about it with some partners and with some startup ideas. Interesting. Okay, let's open this up. Uh, to any of you, uh, there are a couple of microphones around. Uh, there's a hand here, and there are two floating mics. There's one here, please. And would you come back over to here? And if there's a hand here, if you can give her the mic, please. You have the first and you have the second, please. Hold it closer. Regarding social entrepreneurship. Regarding social entrepreneurship, how are the inefficiencies of redundancy and the corresponding inefficiency of capital flows addressed. Um, specifically, I've founded four companies in the commercial arena and have recently founded my first uh, not-for-profit. In the commercial arena, there are the venture, capitals, venture capitalists and the uh, capital flow that qualifies the business plan, the efficiency of the capital flow, and then the corresponding market forces where the customers and new capital flow go to the most efficient product and services. In the not-for-profit arena, the barrier to entry for a 501c3 and getting involved is very minimal, and I'm finding great redundancy across the board. How can we have greater efficiencies for better return on the capital flowing to the social entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think that's, 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 that's a very, very good question. I mean, I think that uh, um, one major obstacle to, you know, to, to, to scale is really getting those efficiencies to, to, to take place. You know? as, a, as a social entrepreneur, you spend 50 to 60% of your time raising money sometimes instead of actually your energies involved in the, in, in the actual program, which you might, you might not find. You know, in, a, in, in a more traditional startup, you go to the venture capitalists and they fund you for two to three years and then you, know, you can focus on, on actually getting, getting, getting your work done. So... Um, there's definitely a need for some kind of um, a more efficient marketplace. You know, maybe some kind of a, there's some talk of having like, like a social stock market where you can actually, you know, almost list a, a non-profit entity and have people invest in that directly. And, and instead of having, you know, your, your earnings results as, as, as your metrics, you can show how you're impacting society and people can know where to go and, and actually invest their resources. So we definitely need to find ways to, um, and also, I think there's a, the access to capital, a lot of it is driven by networks, you know, where you have to know certain people to be able to get the, the capital that you need to, to get a social, entrep you know, venture off the ground, whereas uh, 
in, in a for-profit sense, the, the, the smell of, of money um, you know, gets, a, gets you much quicker to the people who have the, the resources. I, I, would, I would just say briefly, let's not discount the ability of for-profits to have social missions and accomplish huge goals as a for-profit, particularly because they're for-profit. So uh, uh, what we're finding is that venture capitalists are, are very willing. This company, Coulomb, has raised you know, 30 million bucks already. Uh, for its charging technologies. I would consider them a social venture to some extent because they're doing the very early high-risk work of making the electric vehicle infrastructure possible. But it's definitely a for-profit venture that's going to have a return as well. So I think we're looking also at hybrid models where there could be non-profits, there could be for-profits, they could work together. Um, so I think it's, the lines are being blurred to some extent, which I think actually is a good, is a good thing. Yeah, let me just add, there, there was a significant uh, gathering in New York just about three or four weeks ago of venture philanthropists, of foundations, and others trying to address this very issue. What kind of organizations can we form? Where can we go from here? In order to, in part, to deal with the scaling question, uh, as well as the efficiency. And uh, what you find now is that uh, the, the Obama administration has gotten to its credit, uh, has gotten involved with this, creating a social innovation fund, and they're, they're going to begin giving out grants to intermediary groups that, in effect, will, will act as, uh, as a new profit, for example, Vanessa Kirsch, Kirsch uh, runs. A new profit provides funding to, mezzanine-level funding to, uh, uh, new social entrepreneurial, new social entrepreneurial organizations, and they've had an extraordinary success rate at spotting through application process those that are quite promising, and they grow from that. Uh, and a lot of venture philanthropists, Bob, Bob Steele, is chairman of the Aspen Board, is extremely interested in this issue. He's been already been involved and in trying to push that forward. I think you, if you through some conversations here, you can locate people who would be uh, 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 partners. And, and both in thinking about it and enacting on this, because it is one of the key questions now, given all this froth and a number of people who really want to make a difference, how do you create uh, a capital market, in effect, uh, that is going to, to allow them to grow? To, of the number of new nonprofits in this country, only a tiny fraction grow to a significant, to, so where they really have impact beyond a, a, a small part of a small community. There was a question over here with the microphone, and if, with, if, please, with the microphone, if we can distribute one over here. The woman has her hand up. So you're next, here, please. Um, I'd like to follow up on something that Jack just said. Could you elaborate on the effects the financial crisis had on the young generation of entrepreneurs, and how do you see it played out now? I would just say that I, I would just say that I love crisis. I mean, I, <laughs> as, as an entrepreneur. The people who hate crisis are incumbents, right? If you've got seven, eight billion dollars of revenue, you know, riding on top of you that you've got to meet and have quarterly numbers, and I used to be CEO of a public company, and trust me, it is not necessarily the fun, most fun job in the world. Every, you know, day you wake up sweating, are we going to make the numbers that the analysts have and things like that? That is not a good situation to be in, in a crisis. But when you're an entrepreneur with really nothing to lose, and you could just start from a greenfield tabula rasa situation, you love crisis. Why? Do you think that these companies that we approached about electric vehicles, some crazy concept of moving vehicles around with electricity, would have even taken the meeting if it were not for a crisis? No. Okay? If they, they were riding high, love these companies, but they would not really be interested in these sorts of ventures. But in this kind of crisis right now, you can do a lot of things. The government as well. When we came to the government initially with this cash for clunkers concept with the CAP, Center for American Progress, and others, there was initial resistance. It was a year and a half before the actual project. As the crisis got worse and worse and worse, we got more and more phone calls returned. And ultimately, we got the program done at $3 billion. But I don't think we could have gotten it done without that kind of sense of crisis. So I love crisis, I guess. I think also there's, um, it depends on where your funding sources are from. So um, 
you know, we are traditionally been funded by high net worth individuals. And uh, during the crisis, you know, we actually had record fundraising uh, during that time. Um, because I guess they were, they were, you know, if, if you're a billionaire and you're worth half a billion, you can still give money. Are these um, Afri African? No, globally, globally. Globally. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I think, but there definitely was a huge drop from corporate philanthropy, for example. You know, so I think it, it depends on, um, and, and also there, there seemed to have been some, maybe some, some sort of a flight to quality as well uh, during that time where with, with, with limited resources as, as a philanthropist, you're saying, well, you know, now I've got to put it where I know it's really going to, going to, going to, going to have impact. Uh, so I think that, you know, the, 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 the social entrepreneurs who are doing impactful work were still able to get funding. Great. There's a question here, and after she speaks, can you move the microphone, please, back to Howard Gardner? Yeah. And there'll be one microphone over here, please. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm just struck by the uh, interchangeability with which you address the public and the private sector. And um, I consider myself a social entrepreneur. I started an international women's rights organization almost 20 years ago, and I've watched it grow. And um, I guess I'm intrigued by what you're saying. I think we do want more performance-based type of approach to, to some of our work. But at the same time, what, what I wonder is, um, can, we, can we really compare selling you know, more electric cars to movements for social justice? I mean, are there significant differences in the way that we would approach social change versus commercial marketing? Are they completely interchangeable? And, um, Interchangeable in what sense? In terms of how you measure results, or how you go yeah. about creating organizations? Or I think, what? yeah, the way, the way in which the way in which you see change, you know, the way in which you see the market change might be different from the way in which you see the consciousness of a people change, which is really critical to, to, to advocacy. So that, you know, you may have, for example, a more slow building where you could measure in a very different way, but not the traditional social entrepreneurial way, because one person speaking out is not a significant number. And yet, one person might affect the minds of people in many different ways that you wouldn't even know until 10 years later when you have a whole movement. I mean, if you look at the Korean comfort women, it took almost till the end of their lives. One, one woman spoke out, and then you know, there, there was a movement 10 years later. But sometimes what I see, I've worked a lot in the area of female genital mutilation, raised about $3 million for grassroots groups. You see the grassroots groups, the people in the village, which is where the change needs to happen, they know exactly what they need to do, or at least they think they do, and they know when they're making progress and they know when they're not. But what I see is the social entrepreneurial approach sometimes comes in, says, no, we, we have to measure all this. And so what ends up happening is the empowerment of like a social science approach, which completely excludes the traditional leaders at the village level who may have an instinctive approach to their own community change process, and yet won't be considered appealing to some of these investors because they don't know how to measure, they don't have a baseline, but there's not a lot of money either in the movement, and so they want to spend the money on the advocacy, not on the measurement. And, and I just see that tension, and I don't know if it's been really properly discussed. I would just say, I don't know if people heard Greg Mortensen in the last day or two, but one of the things he talked about was the engagement of elders you know, as he goes to village to village. And another aspect of his building of schools is he says, here's the deal. He comes to a village and says, here's the deal. Um, we'll help build the school. We'll provide a lot of infrastructure. But the labor has to come from the community for free. The land has to come from the community for free. The buy-in has to come from all the elders, and that has to happen before we build a school. 
And that's why none of their 60-yard schools in Afghanistan have been destroyed by the Taliban, whereas other schools have been destroyed because the community is protecting those particular schools. So I don't see social entrepreneurship as negating or in any way undermining because you want to be successful. To be successful, and it's not just about measurement. I think that's one maybe external aspect to social entrepreneurship. For me, it's about using the kinds of guerrilla and scaling techniques that we know in the for-profit world and adapting them to this kind of world and not being satisfied with saying, you know what, um, yes, it's great that we have a program that works for two or three villages, but now how do we take it to a thousand villages and things like that? Again, coming back to education in this country, 55 million kids, and we all know some of the stats around that. If we want to have some kind of impact, we have to start thinking about problems in that kind of scale. Measurement is a piece of it, but it doesn't undermine going to experts and people who actually know what's, know what's going on. I can just add on to that. I mean, I think the point you're making is that um, measuring impact should not be limited only to the numbers of people that are in your program and so on. So and I completely agree that, for example, with the work we're doing, you know, um, we, we, we work with 100 young leaders a year from across Africa. And someone might say, you know, there's, there's, a, there's millions of kids who, who, who need this, this type of program. And, um, you know, if you look at something like, like malaria, we have certain kids working on, 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 with, on big ideas to, to, that could help eradicate malaria. Three of them could come up with a big idea that could eradicate malaria for Africa. That's a million people a year who don't die anymore from malaria. So if you're looking at it, yeah, you're working with three people, but the impact that those three people could have on, on a greater number of people is much broader. So I think that it's about measuring impact and not necessarily the numbers of people that are in your specific program. Yeah. Yeah. Howard Gardner. Thanks, David. Um, the question had to do with uh, how can Jack find out whether his program is successful? And let me first say that I think it's great to have two social entrepreneurs who are working in the area of education. And the fact that the kids who are involved in your program, Jack, are passionate and that they're learning about how scientists and engineers really approach problems is all to the good. I also think that you don't want to, shall we say, be a premature evaluator and begin to, as you were saying yourself just now, right away, set up a multiple choice, uh, four, you know, four questions, and then you decide your program is a success or not. But I also think that the single biggest failure of the progressive education movement in the 80s and 90s, which was more performance-based, more hands-on, is that um, good alternative forms of assessment were not developed, and so to speak, that, um, that task was ceded, C-E-D-E-D, -E -D, to people who are very good at uh, none of the above kinds of questions. Um, and I don't think that's a good ending either. So it, it, I'm not going to show how little I know about the calculus, but I think the way you need to think about your issue is as follows. What are the performances of understanding that you could reasonably expect kids who'd been through, let's say, the car acceleration exercise uh, ought to be able to do? Uh, we have what's called near transfer, which would be, all right, you have to do the same kind of uh, problem with a rocket rocket ship, and you don't have to build a rocket ship, you can simulate it. But then if you give a, so let's, let's say a question about microbe growth, and you don't say, uh, this is a calculus question, um, but you see whether the child can bring, the student can bring some of the 
uh, calculus thinking to bear, that's a sign of a far transfer, which is what we really, um, what we really want. The bottom line is, in America particularly, the gold standard has been the ETS multiple choice question. William F. Buckley once said, to get the right answer on an SAT, you don't have to know what the right answer is. You have to know what the schnook at ETS who created the question thought the right answer was. Uh, the challenge for your program, and also for the first program, which I love, is to come up with something with some face validity, which you can give relatively economically, and with simulation, it's much easier, which becomes the gold standard. Can I just, please. Yeah, please. Um, well, I agree with everything that said, Howard said. And let me also say that there's something underlying all the facts and techniques that we're trying to impart to kids or share with kids in school. And notice I don't use the word teach kids. That is problem solving. I hire a lot of people, both in for-profit and non-for-profit entities. And we interview people. And we have a, a funny sort of test and series of tests that we give people before we interview them. And I would say that it really gets the issue of problem solving. Can someone take a novel situation, Howard, as you're suggesting, and apply what they have learned from previous types of, of experiences to this, novel, to this novel problem? And I can tell you that the variability is wide, and it is not correlated with the grade scores that we see on their academic transcript. We're seeing correlation with very different indices. This is not a session about that, so I'll leave it to another time. But the, problem, the underlying skill development of problem solving, of saying, hey, I can build a robot, then I can build a bridge. And by the way, these same kids, by the way, have built bridges, then robots, then rockets. So it's funny you mentioned those three things, um, because that's actually what the kids are doing. And can they actually start to use and apply what they've learned before in a previous exercise to one of the new ones? So I think we are going to have to develop a whole new set of assessment tools, because the old ones just don't really apply. Well, I would love this conversation to go on. There are several of you who have, uh, have raised your hands, and I'm sorry we're not able to get to everyone. It's in the nature of the Aspen conversations. I think at the very moment they get most exciting. Uh, we have to move on, uh, and, and uh, that's what we have to do now. But in the meantime, I must tell you, once again, I come away, as I did from the Socrates dinner the other night with Michelle Ree and Kasim Reed, uh, very encouraged uh, about this next generation uh, and about their their passion uh, for change and the, and the way they're applying themselves in, a, in imaginative new ways of thinking. And I think it's for all of us, it, is, it gives us fresh hope. So this, on a very stage where yesterday there was a lot of despair, you all give us fresh hope. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fred, okay.